Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with the things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Mindful meditation. Have you heard of it? It's become quite popular. There are a number of apps like Headspace and Calm, which teach you how to practice it, teach you various techniques to help you learn to live in the present moment. And it's been hyped as the magic pill that will reduce your stress, relieve your anxiety, quiet your restless mind, improve your sleep, leading you, of course, to something, to a greater focus, to greater creativity, productivity, even possibly contentment. It seems that people are finding the pace of our 21st century digital lives too much to handle, and they're looking for help. And some people think they've found the answer, that they've found something in meditation, in mindfulness. But many others have found the nothingness of mindfulness to be scary. They've found that focusing on their innermost feelings, a terrifying experience. One recent study found that if given the choice between mindfulness, meditation, and electrical shock, people choose the shock. I get that. How should we as disciples of Jesus think about all of this? Where do we, where do you look for help in this stress-filled, restless time? I get the sense sometimes talking to people that they assume the Bible, being as it is an ancient book, has little to say really about the kinds of stresses, the kinds of challenges, the kinds of complicated issues we face today. They might think it deals with eternal matters of salvation and the afterlife, or they may think that it touches on a high level with ethical and social justice issues. And yet many people in the way they live and act seem to be saying they don't think the Bible speaks with the kind of specificity that they would like or feel they need for the challenges we face today until we stumble on a passage of Scripture like this, like Psalm 131. And we realize, or at least we should realize, that the Bible, though it is ancient, very ancient, it is timeless truth from our Creator God, the Maker of everything that exists, truth through which His Holy Spirit speaks fresh and relevant words to every generation's problems, every generation's challenges, including ours, if we're only willing to listen. David here in Psalm 131 speaks profoundly to our restless, distracted, stressed out times by describing, first of all, the problem very accurately. And we'll call it this morning, the noise. He goes on then to prescribe a solution what we'll call the quiet. And then he points us to an outcome, to the effect, to the goal, really, of everything that he's talking about, and we'll call that the music. So we have noise, quiet, and then we'll get to the music. So let's begin where David begins with the noise. What is it? 
What is the noise? It's pride. It's the self-talk that dominates our thinking, that reverberates on and on inside our heads. It's what mindful meditation is trying to fix. There's an old Garfield cartoon. I may be dating myself, but Garfield is a cat. And he's talking to a dog named Odie. And he says, Odie, I'm tired of talking about me. You talk about me for a while. That's the noise. It's the relentless assessing and ordering of the world around me. And the denials here in Psalm 131 that characterize verse 1 point us to the problem. If you kind of flip it around, you get this. I'm proud. I'm self-focused. I'm haughty. I, I look down on people. And my mind is consumed with things too great and too difficult for me. I'm always playing the armchair quarterback. I'm the backseat driver. And because of this, I am noisy and restless and agitated on the inside. Like a hungry baby on his mother's lap. That's me. Like a hungry baby demanding what I want, when I want, I'm controlled by my passions and my worries and my selfish desires. That's the noise. And it's ugly. But because it's been there really since the time we were born, we grow accustomed to it, familiar with it. We even become attached to it. In our youth, the volume starts to ramp up rapidly to a blatant and I would say culturally encouraged volume. And then it becomes so much a part of who we are as adults that we don't really even notice it like we should. We think we've matured beyond the childish games of our adolescent years. But it's there, controlling and corrupting everything. It's the noise of self-promotion or self-loathing, depending on your mood or your general perception of how things are going. Like a child throwing a tantrum, it's the language of want and need that rattles on in our brains. I deserve. I, I need this. I, I want that. I shouldn't have to put up with that or put up with you. I shouldn't be deprived of the things I want. I'm not going to take it anymore. The noise of pride at work in our hearts comes through in so many different ways. It comes at us in replayed conversations when we say what we really wanted to say. And it's revealed in stupid fantasies. I can tell you the noise fuels the anger. It fuels the withdrawing, the pouting, the impatience, the noise. It powers the grumbling and the complaining, the feelings of discontent. It fuels our fears and our worries. It craves things and honor and power and money and peace and quiet and safety and security and recognition and significance and on and on and on it goes. It's exhausting. You're probably getting exhausted just listening to me talk about it. But this noise is not simply a private matter. It's not confined just within our heads. It's not only about me, but it's about you too. It's not detached from our relationships with one another. But the conversations inside our head find their context in life. The noise in relation to others is often filled with sinful judging 
and comparisons, filled with envy and strife. I've got to find a way, if not in reality, at least in my own mind, at least to me, I've got to find something about myself that makes me look better than you. Something I can take pride in. Everything that happens gets processed in relationship to me. It gets filtered through that lens. It usually gets distorted through that lens. I don't think I have to tell you how common this is, do I, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our friendships, in our relationship with our children and with our spouses, even in our relationships here at church, even in a church that's just beginning. And the noise that characterizes pride working in my heart, it's not simply about me and you, but it's very theological. It's about God, too. It targets God. David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. In other words, things that belong to God. God things. But the noise does. Oh yes, it does. And so we often end up questioning God as if He owed us an answer. Some go as far as to sit in judgment over God, claiming that if they were on the throne, things would be different. Things would be better. Of course, most people wouldn't say that, but many people assume it by taking the role of God in their own little worlds as they try to manipulate the people and the situations of their lives to their liking and to their advantage. You can see this in your life when you become frustrated and angry at things beyond your control. When that happens, you're really angry and frustrated with a sovereign God. David is saying that pride takes on more than it's supposed to. It takes on things that belong only to God. And in its arrogance, it backhandedly, the noise inside our heads backhandedly confronts God. I don't know many of you. But I don't want any of you here to think that the descriptions I've given you here this morning come from my own personal experience and reflect the noise I hear inside my head. But as you probably figured out, it does, right? I mean, you're looking at me going, he must be pulling this from his own life. Oh my goodness. Should he be up there? Well, I am. And so, well, I probably haven't described your brain chatter with complete accuracy, I bet I'm close, real close, close enough that you can make some connections in your own heart if you're willing. And what David is saying here in Psalm 131 that's so profound, he's saying that all that kind of noise at that decibel level, which is so common to our human experience, is not happening inside his head. And I find that to be a very interesting statement because we know David's story, or at least a big part of his story. We know of his sin. We know of his failings. Now, I love that about the men and women of the Bible. They're not unusually pious. They have heard the noise themselves. James, to encourage his readers, writes in his letter that Elijah, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, was human, just like us with like passions, and yet God moved in his life. That's encouraging. And David, too, I believe he was a man who struggled with the kind of noise we're talking about. Think about it. How could he avoid it? 
In his teen years, the leader of his country, Samuel, the great prophet and judge over all Israel, shows up on the property and he anoints him king over all Israel, bypassing not only his older brothers, but setting up this conflict between the current king, Saul, and the future king, David. He goes on to become a great warrior. He was handsome, athletic, a natural leader. People just followed him. He had a winsome personality. Everybody liked him or they envied him. And not only did he play, play the harp professionally, compose music, write poetry, you know, the book of Psalms, but the women of Israel wrote and sang songs about him. I mean, come on. <laughs> this is like, uh, it's a little much, right? I mean, you're thinking, okay. And yet we often assume that our biblical heroes, they don't play with the same deck of cards, that they somehow don't struggle with the kinds of things that we struggle with. But a survey of David's life reveals a man who, though he had some wonderful displays of godly character, we see a man who struggled with the noise. 1 Samuel 17, right before his battle with Goliath, his older brother Eliab, when he heard David speaking with the men, burned with anger, and he asked him, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. Now, maybe this is the voice of jealousy. Or maybe this is the voice of someone who knows his brother. Maybe there's some truth in what he says. And the story of David with Bathsheba reveals a man willing to take what he wanted, willing to commit murder in order to cover his tracks and save his reputation. The noise inside his head must have caused him to believe that he was special, that he was different, that he was above others and in some way above the law of God. In 2 Samuel 24, David wrongly orders a census of the people of Israel. And Joab's concern points to David's motive, pride. The noise, a desire to see how great his kingdom had become, to see how mighty of a man he was compared to the other kings of the earth. Now a question we need to consider, and here's as good a time as any, is whether or not this place of quiet David speaks of was temporary or permanent. Was he vacillating back and forth over the course of his life between the noise and the quiet or not? Commentators are mixed. Me, I'm not as mixed as they are. I think he vacillated. I don't think he reached a point of some kind of noise reduction perfection. I think he vacillated. Maybe I'm reading my own story into this, which could generously be described as two steps forward and one step back. But I think David wrote this psalm at a time in his life when his thoughts had become more Godward and others focused because the restless preoccupation and promotion of his mind had been overwhelmed by the grace and goodness of God. And I also think, more importantly, he wrote this psalm as a prophetic pointer to Jesus Christ, who did not vacillate, who lived as a man on this earth, the quieted life in fellowship with God the Father, who though tempted in all things just as we are tempted, did not give in, did not listen to the noise of the sinful self. 
who though he was God, the eternal son, was not filled with prideful boasting, but humbled himself and took on human flesh, humbled himself even further and died a disgraceful death on a cross for sinners, opening up a way to the Father for all who would believe in him, for all who would trust. He opened up an eternal life of contentment with God for all who would come to join God's family. But for now, though like David, we fall short of the perfection that is to come. In and through Jesus Christ, we can experience now in part the kingdom life, the quiet life that is to come. And so after drawing our attention to all the noise, we come to the quiet. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I can't say for sure whether David is using weaning here simply as a picture of what the quieted mind looks like, or if he also sees it as an indicator of the process by which the mind is quieted. Clearly, he doesn't elaborate, but because he says that this quieting and calming is something he's partly involved in, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Let's assume that it's both picture and process. And as a process, we know weaning is essentially substituting one thing for another. Mother's milk for solid food. In this case, the replacing of the loud din of self-chatter rattling in our heads with thoughts of God first and others second, the two great commands. It's the intentional effort on our part to replace the noise of our sinful self and its pursuit of its own glory with the realization that on every level God is the only one worthy of worship. It's the humility of heart to see ourselves as we really are, dependent, weak, needy, frail, utterly hopeless without God. It's the replacing of our wrong assumptions, our cloudy dreams, our cardboard realities with the rock-solid realness of God and His ways. And of course, the question is, how? How do we do that? Well, David again doesn't say. But a quick look at what he writes about elsewhere in the Psalms gives us a few hints. And I'll point out three briefly here this morning. This is not meant to be comprehensive, not at all, but these are just helpful pointers for you. And I think the first thing is revelation. God has and is revealing Himself to us. So while the noise of self is talking inside our head, God is talking as well. He has and is making Himself known. He has and is communicating to humanity by His Spirit through His Word. And David in the Psalms is in love with what God is saying, what God has revealed. Read Psalm 119. You get the picture. His hope, his strength, his comfort, his joy, his delight, and on and on and on. All of that is in God's Word, in God's law. So David reads it. He meditates on it. He seeks to obey it, etc., etc. And this is essential as we seek to quiet the noise of self inside our heads. And yet what happens when we read God's Word? Well, we, we talked about it a little bit this morning in, in our confession. 
It's not always encouraging, right? And why? Well, because it confronts us with the reality of our natural rejection of God. I mean, that's what confession points to. It exposes the noise. And so first, revelation, engaging regularly with Scripture, and then second, repentance with sorrow. Psalm 25, 32, 38, 51, 130, 143, and many others reflect a heart that is sorry for the noise. And they also reflect an understanding of God's gracious willingness to forgive. I honestly believe that if you try and bypass repentance as you seek to quiet and calm your soul, you probably won't get very far. And yet it's not a go-to spiritual discipline for many of us. But it is essential. That's why I love that time of confession this morning. Luther said that all of life should be repentance. I think David would agree. I think the Psalms teach that. And I believe the New Testament continues with that understanding. And we do need to embrace it as a big part of what it looks like to follow God. And the reason I said repentance with sorrow comes first of all from my own experience. It's easy to say I'm sorry. It's harder to see sin as real and harmful and painful, both to God and to other people. Paul makes a distinction between the two in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow is different than saying you're sorry. Second, sorrow over sin relates to Psalm 131 as we see it differentiates David from his predecessor, King Saul. Both men at points in their lives were confronted with sin. Saul by Samuel, David by the prophet Nathan. Saul repented because it was expedient, but he wasn't sorrowful and it broke him. It cost him the kingdom, Scripture tells us. David was broken and sorrowful over his sin, and he was forgiven and restored. So in seeking to quiet the noise inside our head, we must couple revelation with repentance, with sorrow. And what will flow out of this, I think, is naturally we will make requests of God for help. Even in our repentance, we will see that we don't have within ourselves what it takes to quiet this noise. We will pray. Psalms is essentially a book of prayers. And prayer is requesting something from God. And what are we requesting? Well, we are asking, or we should be asking God, to enable us to bring Him glory by doing His will. That should be at the heart of every prayer we pray. Why? Because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a starting point of all prayer. And so we need revelation, we need repentance with sorrow, and we need requesting in prayer that God's will would be done in our lives for His glory. Now, there are certainly other disciplines, other things that play into quieting the voices, the noise inside our head. But I think these three are a good place to start. That's a glimpse of the process. But the picture of weaning points us to the fact that weaning is not all up to us. In fact, generally, children don't wean themselves. Their mamas do. And God as our Father has not left His children to themselves. 
No, clearly, he disciplines and weans those he loves. As we highlighted, David's life was not neat and tidy. He spent years on the run as a fugitive from King Saul. His sin with Bathsheba brought more discipline. Through the trials he faced, many self-inflicted, others not. Through all of it, God was at work, humbling, breaking, and turning David's heart toward himself. I speak from experience when I say that sometimes hardship or difficulty, even as a result of my own sin, was the only way that God was going to get through to me. He uses trials. He uses the day-to-day circumstances of life to wean us off our self-dependency and our self-focus and our ill-placed hope in the things of this world so that we can trust Him and enjoy Him more fully. Sometimes the only way to grow up in Christ and grow closer to the Father is to go into the valley of the shadow of death. It's interesting to note that Psalm 131 is part of a collection of 15 psalms running from 120 to 134 that are called or marked as Song of Ascents. They were sung as travelers climbed upward which was to Jerusalem, which sat on a hill, to participate in the feasts that mark the Old Testament covenant. Some commentators believe this psalm was first sung corporately by the Israelites as they returned from Babylonian captivity. Reading through the collection, it makes a lot of sense to me. And what we see is those returning, the remnant of Judah, they had been greatly humbled, weaned in many ways off the self-noise and self-focus that had produced a rebellious spirit in their hearts and brought about their demise as a nation. Weaned off an ill-placed hope. And now as they return like a weaned child, they are quiet and calm. But the goal of all this weaning is not simply silence. It's not simply quieting the noise inside our heads. It's not some kind of Christian nirvana, some kind of transcendent state in which our thoughts meld into the mind of God, whatever that would mean. Now scratch it, ridiculous, nonsense. The goal of quieting the noise, the little voices or big voices inside our heads, is so that we can hear something else, something beautiful, which brings us I think to the whole point of the passage. Having started with the noise and then taken us through the process of getting things quiet, we come to the music. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Probably earlier, but certainly by the time of David, there was a realization that by means of keeping the Old Testament law or rules, no man, no woman would ever be made completely right with God. And the sacrificial system highlighted this fact. In other words, they were not going to be able to obey God in a way that would eliminate sin, that would avert judgment, that would eliminate the need for sacrifice and death. In the 130th Psalm, which is linked to 131, not simply numerically, but also in its common exhortation to hope in the Lord, 
we read in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And deep in our hearts, everyone knows the answer to that question. Nobody would be able to stand. And the big question is, where then are we going to find hope? I think it's pretty clear we're not going to find it in ourselves. Simply quieting the noise on our own seems out of reach, but even if we could, of what use would it be? But then we read in Psalm 130, and this, is, this theme is just found all over the Old Testament, if you look for it, that with God there is forgiveness. With God there is plentiful redemption which should cause some of us to pause and think, how could someone, knowing the stipulations of the Old Testament law, knowing of the blessings and the curses, the consequences for not living up to those requirements, talk about forgiveness in the face of a bunch of failure, how could they speak of hope given their awful track record? How? A knowledge of God's character as revealed in Scripture, as he has revealed it. We see in the Old Testament a growing expectation that if God was going to have a people that he could call his own, who would walk in his ways and love him from the heart, he was going to have to act decisively on their behalf. There was going to have to be a new covenant as Jeremiah and Ezekiel saw. And I think that's what the psalmist was waiting for here in Psalm 130 like a watchman waiting for the morning, looking over the horizon, looking for good news that would come from a distant land. He was looking, he was trusting that God would forgive him in the present as he waited for God to act in the future decisively against sin. That's where he found hope. With mindfulness meditation, all hope is found somewhere in here inside my own head, inside my own thoughts. If I just quiet all the noise of who and what the world is demanding of me and telling me who I should be, if I can block all of that out, I can reach the authentic me and find contentment in who I am, as I am. Understandably, I think that's why people find it so scary, right? But God wants to quiet the noise of our sinful self so we can hear something else, something beyond us. And what is it? It's the music. In the Old Testament book of Zephaniah, we find the prophet looking prophetically toward a day of great judgment against all mankind for its sin and rebellion. And yet in the midst of this terrible vision, like David in Psalm 131, he speaks of hope as he writes, the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is a beautiful picture of God like a mom or a dad singing over their children at bedtime. A picture of God rocking us in His arms, quieting the noise inside our heads, singing over us with love, with joy. And our greatest need as humans is to hear that song rightly. We need to know, we need to comprehend the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, our mighty Savior. 
We need to understand how God in and through Christ by His death on the cross in love was reconciling men and women to Himself, not counting their sins and failures against them. But for many of us, the noise of self, the little and not so little voices in our head often drowns out the song of hope that God is singing. They muffle it or they distort it. So instead of love and acceptance in Jesus, we hear loathing and rejection. Instead of forgiveness and mercy, we sense judgment and harshness. Instead of joy and gladness, all we feel is disappointment and sadness. Instead of peace and rest, we feel pressure. We feel the need to prove ourselves over and over and over again. And the noise of impatience that we often feel toward others echoes in our heads as God's posture toward us. Same thing with frustration and disappointment. Functionally, for many, it's as if Jesus didn't go to the cross. We assume our future is safe and secure somewhere out there whenever, or at least we're hoping, but our present experience is all on us and it's not pretty. Yet I can tell you that as we consider our position in Christ, we find that we are loved and cherished by the Father right now. That He has set on us His everlasting affections. That nothing, Romans 8, can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Can you hear that song? If you can, the noise inside your head will give way to a new and glorious thought. It will give way to new and glorious thoughts and affections for God. The noise that once reflected a desire that men would praise us and find us worthy will give way to a word from God planted in our heart that is all about Him. He alone is worthy of honor and glory and praise. Pursuing His glory becomes our greater joy. Even trials take on a new meaning in relation to God. And your thoughts about yourself will begin to change. Now you can see yourself accurately. Not too high, not too low, but with sober judgment, as Paul says in Romans, according to the way God has planned. Not depressed by who you are, not amazed by who you are, but amazed at who God is and what He is making out of you. You know yourself as both sinner and saint, washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, destined for eternal joy with Him. But the change that comes to your mind as the noise of self is quieted and you hear the gospel with greater clarity is not only about your thoughts of God and your thoughts about yourself, but it changes your thoughts about others too. And you find conceit and selfish ambition fading. And now you're ambitious for the sake of others. No more judging and looking down the nose. Sinful comparisons happen less frequently. And you actually can rejoice in the success of others. You begin to assume with joy the role of a servant. Imitating, of course, who? Jesus, your Master. We should see that the quiet is not a place of nothingness. It's not a place of utter silence. That's one of my worst nightmares, personally. You know, solitary confinement is a thing because it's bad. No, when this, this quieting that we're talking about, it's a place where the sounds are entirely 
different. It's a place of love experience. It's a place where we not only hear the music of God's love for us, but we begin to sing the music of God's love for us. We begin to sing of our love for Him. And God encourages us to sing. He encourages us to add in harmony and to build upon the beauty that is in the song. I think it's beautiful. And if you're not a disciple of Jesus this morning, I don't know you. But when people say, talk to you about Jesus and becoming a Christian and all the different languages that is used, they could just as easily say, would you like to join me in singing the song? Would you like to hear that music in your head and feel that kind of love and experience that kind of peace? So let me encourage you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, talk to Pastor Chris or probably a number of people who would love to talk with you about Jesus. But maybe you are a follower of Jesus and in the present moment, this isn't just, this is your experience. This is not what's going on in your life. I want to encourage you. I mentioned two steps forward and one step back as a description of my life. I think we hear the song of God's love and then the cares of this world and the remaining sin in our life begins to drown it out. And we start singing off key. And through His Word and through discipline and the correction of our brothers and sisters and through the preaching of God's Word, through a number of means of God's grace, we realize the noise of self has taken over and we repent sorrowfully and we begin to move toward a place of quiet. And as we get there, the music this time seems a little different. It's more complex. It's, it's, I don't know how to describe it. It's like if you were a kid learning to play the piano and you play chopsticks for the first time and you think, I have arrived, right? I mean, I have hit a high level of comp, you know, competency here. And then a few years later, you're playing Bach or Beethoven and chopsticks just doesn't do it for you anymore. As we go through the ups and downs in life, I think each time God takes us to a little different place where we hear the music, even the suffering, even the suffering that comes by virtue of our sin leads us to hear the music differently. And so we go through this whole process over and over again. And yet what we hear with each new weaning is the music becomes more beautiful, more dynamic, more complete. God is at work in us through all the ups and downs, through all the mishaps and mistakes, through all the sin so that we can hear and experience and sing the song of His redeeming love. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.